you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, <clears throat> it comes from Matthew chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 17. It's a little bit of a journey. You're going to have to walk with me on this one, all right? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You ready? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And this is God's word. Now let's be honest. We all skipped Matthew 1 when you read through the Bible when you were younger. So why is it there? One, because Matthew is giving us history. He's, these narratives are real. That's what he's saying. This is news. This is good news. But two, you see, your genealogy is like your resume. Today, if you're looking for a job, you let people know where you studied, what degrees you earned, where you worked, your credentials. But Matthew doesn't begin with where Jesus studied and where he worked. He begins with his genealogy. Because in ancient times, the focus was not on what you accomplished, but on what your family accomplished. Not on your work, but on their work. And so your family name was your resume. And so as we approach the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the coming of our king, Christmas, the genealogy of Jesus gives us four things. It gives us fulfillment, a place, rest, and the power to get those things. A fulfillment, a place, rest, and the power to get those things. First, the genealogy of Jesus gives us fulfillment. Now, I want you to think about this. Every great fictional story, why do they resonate with us? Great fiction satisfies some deep human longing that nonfiction often, uh, often does not, is not able to satisfy. Take fairy tales, for instance. Fairy tales like, like Sleeping Beauty or Beauty and the Beast, reversing the curse through true love. The story of Superman, 
a savior from another world who steps in into this present world to save it. My favorite book is Pride and Prejudice, the story of a kingly person, Darcy, somebody who's misunderstood, overlooked, and, but he has integrity. He has wealth beyond compare. He does everything. He sacrifices his reputation. He sacrifices his wealth to save his love, a love that doesn't have any regard for him, is, is pretty much avoiding him, doesn't want to have anything to do with him, but he loves her, Lizzie Bennet. Every great story has themes that move us, themes that move us, but they're not fully satisfied, and so we love them. Why? Because we know, deep inside, we all know that we are broken. We know that we are under a curse. All of us long for a love that never dies. We long for this. Um, we want to be a part of a great story. We want to be part of a, a great story of victory over evil, triumph in the darkest times, that the world uh, resembles a land where a winter spell has been cast, but spring is coming. I have a friend who reminds me, uh, of a, he says, here's a story. Here's a foreigner, a prince, an heir to the throne, who's from another world. This world has the greatest technological advancement. It's got great beauty. It's a perfect world, paradise. There's an, uh, an appreciation, sincere love for art and culture and purity, and it's a safe place. But he leaves that world, and he enters into this world, this broken, battling, just war-torn world. He enters in, and why does he do it? To defeat evil. Does that remind you of anything? That actually comes from Black Panther, the Marvel story. You see, Marvel, they get, Marvel gets the gospel sometimes greater than our scholars and our philosophers, more than most people in the world. A story, if it's well told, is so fulfilling because deep inside, even though we've outgrown the story, in a sense, we want to believe that it's true. We want to. Your mind tells you, no, it's not worth believing. Critics will tell you that's childish. Scholars will tell you, you've got to grow up. You've got to think with your brain. You've got to avoid these stories because these stories are just an escape. They're just an opiate for society. But the genealogy of Jesus tells us that Christmas means a prince, the true prince, the true king has come. A savior from another world has come into this world to save the world. The curse of sin has been broken, and it's been reversed through the power of love. Christmas tells us that the story of ultimate sacrifice and truest love has come. For God so loved the world, so loved the world that he gave one and only son. So you can't just hear this story. You can't just read this story. You can't just, just hear this story and say, oh, that's just another great story. You can't do that because it's not another great story. This one's true. And because it's true and because it is a story, it becomes the central reality to which all stories point, the central narrative to which all other narratives point, including your own. It's what your heart longs for. It's what your heart senses. Now, what does that mean? One, Jesus 
is the embodiment, he's the fulfillment of all of our ideals of kingliness and humility and beauty. And so rather than looking for those things and other things, you gotta plug into the story of the gospel. You gotta plug into Jesus' story, his narrative, and let that narrative save you. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise, the promise that we long for, shadowed only through those great fictional stories. So look for kingliness, trust in his victory, look for his beauty, and stop looking for kingliness elsewhere, and stop look for the, looking for the hopes of fulfillment elsewhere. But second, because this is true, Christmas is not just good advice. It's not just strong suggestions for you. You see, if the story of Jesus is not true, why obey anything that the Bible says? But if the story of Jesus, if the birth of Jesus is true, you have to obey everything that he said. Do you believe in the Christmas narrative? Is it personal to you? Because if you do, I mean, look at Mary. Look at Joseph. Look at the people who were around Jesus at the time of his birth. They all believed they all saw, they celebrated, and they obeyed. Lastly, you got to look at the text. Look at the number of generations that we just read through. That's why we read through them. Look at the generations that it took to fulfill the promise of God. What does that mean? That means that the biblical God is not a product of your desires or your needs, your perceived needs. A God that is a mere product of your desires will never be able to disagree with you. We'll never be able to challenge you. We'll never be able to tell you, hey, you need to change the way you live. We'll never be able to tell you, hey, you're on a bad course right now. That kind of God will never be able to save you and will never be able to fulfill you. You see that? Christmas is about a faithful God who fulfills his promises in his time, through his plan, and sometimes it may feel like he is absent, and you may go a long stretch, a long time where prayers aren't answered, you can't see God, he may feel distant from you, but he's not, because Christmas is about man longing for and needing a savior, looking for a savior for generation after generation, and yet God is nearer than ever, nearer than you've ever dreamed, to fulfill, to fulfill needs that you could never fulfill on your own. Fulfillment. Secondly, you get a place. Back then, people messed around with their uh, genealogies, just like we do with our resumes today. We fudge the details. What do we do? Some folks here, uh, they leave out parts of the resume that don't make them look good, right? You, uh, you might have had a bad experience somewhere, or maybe you didn't do well in this one place, and you don't want that place listed as a reference. So what do we do? We take it out of our resume, right? Or maybe some place you just worked, it wasn't long enough, it wasn't extensive enough, and that may say something about you. We get very meticulous about crafting our resumes, and we leave out parts that don't make us look good a lot of times. In ancient times, they did the same thing with their genealogies. They removed people from their family history that they didn't want to be connected with because it would lower their standing, it would lower their, uh, their, their status or their reputation, but not Jesus. Jesus actually includes the failures. He includes these broken pieces. Broken pieces in his genealogy, which is to say what? He's highlighting these people. For one thing, if you look at this text, there are five women in it. Now, in most cases, in those ancient times, you never put 
women in genealogies because women were marginalized. They had no standing in society in the ancient times. They had no rights. A woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. But secondly, most of these women, they were non-Jews. Verse 3, you have Tamar. Verse 5, you have Rahab. They were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. They were enemies to God's people. And on top of that, some of these women were moral failures. Tamar, Tamar tricked her father-in-law to sleeping with her. She committed incest. Rahab was a prostitute. And it's not like the men were any better. Verse 1, right off the bat, you have Abraham. You know what Abraham did? Abraham pimped his wife when he was in Egypt so he could save himself. And he also slept with Hagar to bear a child. In verse 2, you have Jacob. Jacob is a liar. Jacob was a thief. He ruined his family. And in verse 6, Matthew mentions King David. Now, if you had a genealogy, one of the people that you would want listed in the genealogy is David. David is the greatest king of Israel. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was wise. He was courageous. He was a poet. He was a warrior. He was the right gender, the right ethnicity. He wrote many psalms. He was the ultimate insider. But if you notice in verse 6, the text says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew mentions Bathsheba, not by mentioning her name, but by intentionally including the fact that she was Uriah's wife. Not because he had to, so why did he do it? It's because he wants you to remember a time when David, as king, acted cowardly, committed adultery, thought selfishly, he lied, he conspired, he had Uriah, one of his best friends. He was called one of his mighty men. He was a warrior and a protector of David, and yet David had him murdered. And so with one line in the first chapter, in the first gospel, Matthew is saying, here is the great King David, and he's no different than somebody who has committed incest, somebody who was a prostitute. What does that tell you? It tells you that the genealogy of Jesus, tells you that the genealogy of Jesus the fathers and the mothers of Jesus, they were immoral, they were incestuous, they were prostitutes and adulterers and murderers, and yet they have as much of a name as a king and a prince and as someone who is faithful. They were all in, all in need of God's grace, and yet they all have a place. They all have a name. The gospel is good news because it's not your pedigree that gets you in. It's not what you accomplished that gets you in. It's not even about how you lived, to be honest, to get, that gets you in. But rather, it's about Jesus' pedigree, what he accomplished and how he lived. That means that anyone can get in. Do you believe it? It's all by sheer grace. Because we're all equal in dignity, women, and kings, yet we're all sinners, and we're broken, and we're all in need of God's grace. You know what that means? Don't spend your life trying to make a name for yourself, to prove yourself worthy. I mean, in one, and two, one or two generations, no one's, no one's going to even care. But if you look at the genealogy, Matthew intentionally includes the socially marginalized, the culturally marginalized, the morally marginalized to show us what? That no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've run, 
No matter how lost you may feel, no matter how confused you are walking in, no matter how ungrateful you think you are, you could be running from God, hiding from God, not caring for God, not thinking about God, and yet in Jesus, he pulls you in and he can say, I am proud of you. He highlights you. Why does he highlight that? Because he's demonstrating the power of God's love, the power of the gospel for the glory of God. Jesus says, I'm proud of you. He says, you're mine. And that means, one, the coming of Jesus overturns all of our values. Prostitutes and adulterers are listed with kings and priests and prophets. But two, it means that if someone like David's life can be completely just blown up, that means any of our lives can completely blow up. And yet if someone like David, if his life, if he can have a name, if he can have a place still, if he can be renewed and restored, then you can have a name. You can have a place. You can be renewed and restored. If these people can be in, then you can be in. You have a name. You have a place. You're part of Jesus' family. Thirdly, Jesus gives us rest. The coming of Jesus gives us rest, jubilee. In verse 17, we read, there are 14 generations to David, then 14 to the exile, then 14 to Christ. 14 generations, that's two times seven. You're gonna have to do some math here. Then you have 14, another 14, right? That's another two times seven. Then you have another 14, that's another two times seven. If you add that up, you have six cycles of seven generations. Matthew says that Jesus is the seventh cycle. Very important. Why? Because in the Old Testament law, you worked six days, then you rested a seventh. That was a Sabbath. You worked for six years, then you rested on the seventh. And then you worked for six cycles of seven years, right? But at the end of the seventh cycle, it began a period that was capped by what you call the Jubilee the 50th year. What does that mean? Six is the number of incompletion. It's the number of, of, of unrest, work. So you worked six days, you worked six years, you worked six cycle of years. But at the end of the seventh cycle, seven is the number of what? It's the number of perfection, completion. And so in this agrarian society, you let the land literally lie fallow. You let the land rest. You let the land heal. This is an agrarian society where for an entire year, you would just let the land go. And it's kind of almost reminiscent of a return to the Garden of Eden because there, as you let the land rest and heal, you set slaves free. There's no more slavery. There's no more oppression. You cancel debts. You forgave one another. There was a deep holistic peace and justice. Everything was to be restored and made right in the world again. It was called the Jubilee. The word, the operative word was shalom. There was a peace, a deep-seated peace. And yet Israel never has been recorded to have observed it. And so Jubilee meant freedom. And it meant peace, rest. Matthew here says that Jesus Christ ushered in this seventh cycle, generationally, of Jubilee. Because he is Jubilee. 
And so all the days and all the years and all the generations point to his return because when he comes, the world will be free again. All injustice, all oppression, racial oppression, social injustice, economic freedom. We're going to have freedom because economic injustice will come to an end. At the end of Lord of the Rings, at the end of the book, the series, you have Frodo, he wakes up. The climax has passed. The world has been redeemed. And Frodo wakes up and he sees Gandalf and he says this. He says, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he goes, wait, is everything sad going to come untrue? Rest. Holistic rest. Christmas is the end of trying to achieve that rest on your own. Christmas is the end of trying to control your life. We're very meticulous about our lives and our careers. Why? Because we're trying to prove ourselves and control everything. We're trying to restore everything on our own. We're trying to restore the brokenness in our lives, in our families, in our workplace, our minds, our psyches. We're working and working and working. It's the end of still trying to fight God for control. And it's the beginning of surrendering to the king who has come. You know, the world... Religion will tell you that you got to work, you got to work, you got to work, you got to achieve. That makes you a slave. That's the reason why we're so anxious. It's the reason why we're so depressed in our society today. It's the reason why we're hurting. Jesus says, come and rest completely in me. How do you get it? How do you get the power and the confidence to rest? Because if the narrative of Jesus is just a story, if it's not true, then Jesus is a mere example, a model for you at best. Sacrifice for other people, love one another, love your neighbor, uh, forgive. But then you have to bear the weight. You have to prove yourself. Then your resume really is the utmost and most important thing in your life because you are representing yourself. You are saving yourself. What's the central story here? The true king, the high king came down and he lived the life that you should live and he died the death that you should die. And he did this to save his people because of his love for people, his people. Not despite sin, not despite brokenness and suffering and humiliation and death, but through sin, through brokenness, suffering, humiliation and death. And so Jesus Christ, the long-awaited high king, he didn't come in a throne, he came in a manger. And he was homeless, and he was penniless, and he was abandoned, he was friendless, betrayed, he was arrested, and he was killed. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. What do you see? You see Jesus on the cross, and he's working. He's working. He's striving. He's laboring, and he's groaning. He's sweating, and he's, and he's weeping, and he's struggling He's experiencing the curse of sin, the penalty of sin. The wrath of God is being poured out on him on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying in that moment is, I've lost a father. Why? So that we would have a father. When you have a father, you take on his name. Because he's lost a father, he says, because I've lost a father, I've been forsaken. I've lost the promise. Why? So that you would have the promise. I've lost my place. I've lost my status. So that you would have a place. You would have status. I've cosmically, I'm cosmically laboring to pay the debt, to pay the price. Why? So that you can rest in him. Union. 
Look at the beauty of Jesus. How does ultimate beauty become even more beautiful? It's through suffering, through shame, through brokenness and death. See, if we didn't have those things, heaven will actually be insufficient. Because when there is suffering and shame and brokenness and death and redemption and restoration, now you have courage. You have love that never dies. You have a love that has been tested. That's why Jesus included the immoral and the sinful and the broken and the shameful because he works through the immoral and the sinful and the broken and the shameful to bring about a saving grace. God works through the immoral and our, and our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our death. And the genealogy of Jesus shows us that there is no sin, there is no brokenness, there is no shame that can overcome God's wisdom. There is no shame or brokenness or sin that can overcome God's plan or the righteousness of God's son or the love of Jesus' cross nor the power of Jesus' resurrection. And if God can work through the cross, if God can work, the, work through the death of his own son to bring about a salvation for his people, do you have any darkness in your life? Have you ever experienced betrayal, rejection in your life? Have you ever felt, there are people here that say, yeah, I'm always out. Or you're just trying to resolve the brokenness in your life. Or there's a guilt, or there's just sin that's present, ever present in your life. You feel helpless and ashamed. Hear Jesus Christ say, I'm proud of you. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Brothers, family, we have a name. Behold the beauty of Jesus. This Christmas, that's the meaning of Christmas. Will you behold the beauty of Jesus be found in the love of Jesus. Be saved through the work of Jesus. What a powerful narrative. And it's true. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.